Good morning, everybody. Today we have part two of the God questions, and here's how we'll begin. Social media. With our stay-at-home order and our world quarantined and people having way too much time on their hands, social media has lit up like never before. Some of it's fine and some of it not so much. I mean, it can be productive. Uh, we are spending this time together because of a social media platform, so it can be helpful to us. But the mindless blather that's available to us there is just staggering, staggering. And if you take a deep dive into something like TikTok or something like that, you can actually feel your IQ dropping. No kidding. Even when you're just trying to read an online article to gain some insight into an issue, whether it be health-related or spiritually oriented or especially one of a political nature, beware of reading past the end of the article because the message board that follows is usually a treatise on human depravity. You've seen this. Anyone and everyone can act as though they're an expert on whatever the subject of the day is. And the vast majority of it is just vitriol being posted by folks who do so simply because they know they can do it anonymously. Uh, I read an article not long ago, a political article about the elections to take place later this year. Uh, the message board following it was a litany of scathing accusations against not just one, but several of the candidates seeking the presidential bid. It was unbelievable. Using words like stupid, ignorant, out of touch, uninformed, these political armchair quarterbacks were referring to presidential candidates as though they were as dumb as plants. Now, we might disagree passionately with a stand that a politician takes, but to proclaim that they are stupid, ignorant, uninformed, really says a whole lot more about the accuser than the accused. Trust me, they're not stupid. Uh, they may take a different stand than you prefer, or even have different desired outcomes than you prefer. But trust me, they are not ignorant or uninformed. But the incredible thing is that anyone with a working computer or a phone can confidently post their opinion as though they're an expert on whatever subject they're talking about. And these message boards actually get taken seriously sometimes. I've seen them quoted by newscasters during sensationalistic pitches. Like, well, Bob from Omaha stated online that the senator allegedly may be related to Bigfoot. We'll see. Back to you, Dan. <laughs> and people hearing this said publicly start thinking, wow, the senator and Bigfoot, I had no idea. Well, you know, politics is not the only arena where strong vocal opinions are voiced by self-proclaimed experts. You think people have opinions about religion? You better believe it. You better believe it. I ran into an exchange of opinions like this a while back, and the topic was religion, and everyone was spouting off uh, this and that, and the tenor got higher and higher and higher until someone rang the ultimate bell, and they said this, all of what you folks are fighting about is not worth the energy that you're expending. He said, everybody knows that religion, particularly Christianity, is utterly baseless anyway. He said, everybody knows that the Bible's full of bad history, worse science, and terrible psychology. Sooner or later, smart people are going to figure this out, and the whole thing will just go away. Now, you think about those words. The Bible's full of bad history, worse science, and terrible psychology. Sooner or later, smart people will figure this out, and it will all just go away. Well, his comments are going to serve as our springboard today 
So today we're asking the question, is the Bible true? In this series, The God Questions, here's the one for today. Is the Bible true? Is it trustworthy? Can we depend on it? These are some very, very tall accusations that the man made. So that leads us into our examination today. How credible is this book? How credible is the Bible? We know the Bible is extremely popular. So popular, in fact, that it's the number one bestseller of all time. And, in fact, if it were included on the bestseller list, it would be number one every week. Other popular writings don't even come close. For example, we would agree, all agree, that Shakespeare is extremely popular, one of the most all-time popular writings. It's been translated into 60 languages. But the Bible has been translated into over 2,000 languages, and that number continues to increase. Even now, as we speak, an army of full-time translators is working hard to make this word available to even more people groups. It is by far the most important and popular writing ever. But we're not asking if it's popular. We're asking a different question. Can we trust the Bible? Is it credible? When we take this book and we open it on our desk, or we open up our phone to our Bible app and begin to read, when we point our friends and others to faith in Jesus Christ on the basis of this book, can we do so with our heads held high? Can we have confidence in the integrity of this book? Let's jump right into what that guy's claims were. He said the Bible is full of bad history, poor science, and terrible psychology. So let's take it apart today. First, his claim was that the Bible is bad history, saying it can't be trusted. That's his opinion, so let me ask you. Is the Bible good history or bad history? Which is it? Let's talk about bad history for just a moment. What makes bad history? Let me just start with an example, a few examples of bad history. Listen to these statements and tell me why they're bad history. First example. The Pilgrims began the first English colony here when they landed at Plymouth Rock in 1811. Is that good history or bad history? Bad history. Why? The date's wrong. They landed in 1620. Good history pays attention to dates and it gets them right. Bad history doesn't. Second example. The great uh, president Abraham Lincoln was born on February 12, 1809 in Yeehaw Junction, Florida. Good history. Bad history. It's bad history. What's wrong? The location is wrong. The dates are right, but the location's wrong. Geography is wrong. Good history pays attention to geography, and it gets it right. Okay, third example. Mahatma Gandhi will always be remembered as the inventor of Apple computers. Good history, bad history. <laughs> What's wrong? Well, the person's wrong. It was Steve Jobs and his two business associates. Good history pays attention to the people facts, and it gets them right. Bad history doesn't. One more. Tiger Woods started playing professional golf in 1996, but his lack of motivation resulted in a lackluster career with no wins. Good history, bad history. Dates are right. What's wrong? Well, the whole storyline is wrong. Bad history can be defined as any account of an actual event that plays loose with dates, location, people, or storyline. I think we can all agree on that. Now, when you study the Bible and you compare it to accepted history. The events surrounding the teachings of the Bible have all been well documented historically. There's been wide documentation, lots of cross-checking. The Bible is not bad history. 
Matter of fact, not only is the Bible just good history and beyond, it has been proven to be outstanding history. Not only does it pass with regard to dates and locations and people and so on, but oftentimes information in the Bible that secular historians once disputed, the biblical account proved to be the more accurate one in the final analysis. A couple examples. For many, many years, historians scoffed at the notion that Moses could have written the first five books of the Bible. They claimed that in Moses' day, people were what they called preliterate, preliterate. So they said, this is obviously a situation where the Bible is bad history. But many years later, archaeologists uncovered scrolls and writing instruments that clearly show that a good portion of Moses' culture was literate. All the secular historians could say was, oops, I guess the Bible isn't such bad history after all. Another example. Critics of the Bible kept pointing to a group of people that's referenced many times in the Bible, a group of people known as the Hittites. They're mentioned many times in the Old Testament. Historians said, no such people ever existed. This is fiction. There's no record of them anywhere. This shows that the Bible is bad history. But in 1906, archaeologists unearthed not only evidence that the Hittite nation existed, but they uncovered its capital city and 40 other key cities that made up the Hittite Empire. Once again, the only response from the critics was, oops, guess the Bible isn't such bad history after all. This kind of thing has happened over and over and over again in the last hundred years, where what was thought to be bad history suddenly became good history because of archaeological discovery. So much so that a writer by the name of William Lane Craig, who is a PhD and author of over 40 books, and he holds graduate degrees from four universities on two continents, and was named among the world's top living philosophers and historians. William Lane Craig says this, it is high time the writers of scripture get their due for taking great pains to be accurate even in the little details of the Bible, he says. Craig goes on to say that biblical writer Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, he says he used uncanny geographical precision when he references certain towns and cities and villages that he and the Apostle Paul traveled through on their first missionary journey. Uh, William Lane Craig says that each place that's mentioned squares exactly with the record of secular history. And beyond that, he's amazed at Luke's grasp of government as he cites the official names of each magistrate, proconsul, and governor of the day. Craig says it would have been very, very easy to get at least one or several of them wrong. Luke gets every single one of them exactly right. Beyond that, Luke is right on the money when he describes mountains, valleys, rivers, even the coinage of his day. All in all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without a single error. Craig summarizes here. He says, there's no bad history going on here. No. Lots of one-time skeptics are realizing that their tired, worn-out, cliched protests are circling the drain. The truth is, the New Testament is in a class by itself when it comes to reliability. It is the only writing of antiquity that has thousands of ancient manuscripts dating so close to the original writings. Nothing else even comes close. The New Testament is the most reliable book in ancient history due to three very important things. The first is just the vast number of copies that you can compare with. The second thing is the tremendous care that went into copying. And the third thing is 
the closeness of the copies to the original. There was a very, very good reason for that. Uh, Bonnie and I got to visit the caves at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. They've got a museum and a teaching center there and they convey the ancient process of what went into copying these precious scrolls. The synagogue scrolls had to be written on specially prepared skins of clean animals. Each writing had to contain a certain number of columns. Each column had to have between 48 and 60 lines and be 30 letters wide. Not 29, not 31. Beyond that, the spacing between the letters, the sections, and the books was precise and it was measured using threads. Transcribers could not deviate from the original in any manner whatsoever. No words were ever to be written from memory. That's how strict it was. Beyond that, the person making the copy had to wash his whole body before beginning, and he had to reverently wipe off his pen before writing God's name down. Beyond that, he had to wash his whole body before writing God's covenant name, Yahweh. That's how serious it was. Now, the Masoretes, a group called the Masoretes, they oversaw this process from the A.D. 500 to 900, and they adopted an even more elaborate means of ensuring transcriptional accuracy. They numbered the verses, the words, and the letters of each book, and they calculated the midpoint of each one. When a scroll was complete, independent sources came in, and they counted the number of words backward, forward, and then they, from the, from the middle of each of the text, to the side and to the other side to make sure the exact number had been preserved. Up to two mistakes on a page could be corrected, but if there's three mistakes, it condemned the whole manuscript and they had to start over again. There has never ever been such transcriptional care taken. God's word was phenomenally preserved. Now there are more examples, but the point is that someone can say that the Bible is bad history, it's just not factually responsible to say that. Even though the Bible wasn't specifically written as a history book in the strictest of senses, the Bible passes the historicity test with flying colors. And as time goes by, archaeological discovery will only continue to validate the Bible more and more as it has done already. The Bible is good history. Now, let me give one other example before we move on. This is kind of a fun one. This is about words of prophecy from the Bible. See, from Moses to Malachi, the purpose of the Bible's prophetic predictions is to give people hard evidence that the message being delivered is true. The Bible contains about 2,500 prophecies, about 2,000 of which have already come true, been fulfilled. Now, imagine the boldness of predicting the foreign policy of a president 150 years from now and also predicting his name. Isaiah the prophet in about 700 BC did something very similar. He predicted that Jerusalem would be conquered and its people carried off to captivity. And then he prophesied that the Israelites would return to their homeland and that the ruler who would set them free would be named Cyrus. Here's what he wrote. He said, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. History verifies that Cyrus, who was the founder of the Persian Empire, he issued a decree in March of 538 BC, which allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. Now, when Jesus came, 
he fulfilled 332 prophecies. Using the mathematical science of probability, author Peter Stoner, who is Professor Emeritus of Math and Sciences at two different universities, he calculated the odds that any one person could fulfill just eight prophecies from the Old Testament predicted of the Messiah. The chances of that happening were 1 in 10 to the 17th power. <laughs> now, to help grasp that number, just imagine this. Suppose we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and we lay them on the face of the state of Texas. They would cover the entire state two feet deep. Now, mark one of those silver dollars and then stir up the whole mass all over the state. Then blindfold a guy and tell him to go pick up one of those silver dollars and it has to be the right one. He can go as far as he want, but he has to pick up one and it has to be the right one. What would the chance be of him getting that single silver dollar correct? It is one in 10 to the 17th power. And that's just fulfilling eight of the prophecies. Calculating the probability that someone could fulfill 48 of the prophecies brings the number to t one in 10 to the 157th power. <laughs> that's more than twice the estimated number of atoms in the universe, in the universe. Remember, Jesus fulfilled not just eight, not 48, but 332 prophecies. At some point in time, a thinking person just has to say, all right, all right, enough, that's enough. I can see that the Bible is not just a collection of nice writings. There's more. People stake their life on it for a reason. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe I should look into this. All right, let's move on. This guy said the Bible's not just bad history. He said it's worse science, saying it's terrible science. Let's talk about the relationship between bi the Bible and science. It seems like the news and web articles frequently have something to say about the Bible and science. Again, the Bible wasn't written as a science book per se. It's really about the dealings of God with humans. And you've probably heard that old saying that the Bible and science are destined to be strange bedfellows evermore. <laughs> And to a certain degree, that's understandable. At their respective cores, they approach things from absolute opposite ends of the spectrum. A scientist might say, if I can't demonstrate and replicate a phenomenon in my lab, well, then I, I refuse to believe it. While someone on the faith plane would say, with God in the equation, all things are possible. Lab or no lab, replication, no replication, doesn't matter. So you can see the inherent problem there. But after hundreds of years of debates, recently science and biblical scholars have bridged some gaps of understanding. Here's just some of the common ground that's been forming. Many scientists are admitting now that some outside power was probably necessary to kickstart the universe. Some scientists are finally seeing fault in the old equation, space plus time plus chance equals the start of the universe. They're saying now it's unlikely that nothing plus nothing produces anything. Now, in recent years, even some committed atheistic scientists have begun to ponder that maybe, just maybe, someone or something ignited the activity at the very beginning. Okay, one more example. The Bible says in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 25, says that living creatures will reproduce more of their own kind. Another translation says, will reproduce after their own kind. Now, of course, over the last couple hundred years, scientists with an evolutionary bent have been trying to find some clear evidence 
that would indicate gradual evolution from one kind of living thing to a higher kind of living thing, the evolution of the species. The whole concept of evolution depends on that. Now listen to what paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould said. Now Stephen Jay Gould is a Harvard professor, a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist who co-authored or authored over 30 books. Here's what he said. He said, species exhibit no directional change while on Earth. They appear in the fossil record much the same as when they finally disappear. You understand what he's saying? He's saying scientific research is slowly forcing serious students to consider the position that the Bible has held for thousands of years. That is, that living creatures only reproduce after their own kind. Once again, science validates what the Bible says. Science and the Bible are friends, not enemies. Now listen to how astronomer Robert Jastrow summed this up. Robert Jastrow is a NASA scientist and an, uh, an author and a planetary physicist. Here's what he said. He said, for the scientist who has lived by the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He's about to conquer the highest peak of scientific truth, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. All right, let's move on. Let's take on that third claim that the accuser brought. He said that the Bible is terrible psychology. Is it? Is the Bible terrible psychology or is it good psychology? Now, let me just say, this is actually a pretty good litmus test here. It's hard to quantify, I know that, but looking at it this way can be quite helpful, especially in our day. See, in the modern age, the primary test for truth was logic. Things that are reasonable or provable are said to be true. In the postmodern age that we're in now, however, the primary test for truth has become experience. Things that work are what we say to be true now. Okay, so does the Bible lead people into a good and healthy life? I mean, does it produce a good life in the follower of its ways? Not just by the followers, is this proclaimed, but also in its own words. Look what it says in the, in the Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's what it says. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Teaching means that the Bible says, here is the road to take. Rebuking is, oops, you got off the road. Correcting is, here's the way to get back on the road. And then training, training in righteousness means the Bible is saying, here's how you stay on the road. Here's how you stay on the road. Again, it's kind of hard to quantify. It can only be backed up by personal testimony. But many people watching this can tell you, and I can tell you, that Scripture has fulfilled all four of these functions in my life. As a young man who did not know God, the Bible showed me this is the road. And as I began to live a life with God at the center, the Bible clarified right and wrong, good and bad. It defined the road for me. It also showed me when I'd gotten off the road, which I have many times. Scripture, the words of Scripture, turned the light on for me. And God's Word has also led me back onto the road so I could get out of a ditch, which I have found myself into several. Now, over the years, 
This book has helped train me for righteousness and helped me stay on the road in ways that I could not live out if it weren't for the power of God working through His Word. Again, I am far from perfect, but God's Word at the center of a life works. It works. You know, at the very end um, of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus looks at his listeners and he says these words. I want us to take a look at these. Jesus speaking, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But, he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams arose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I'm a mature man now. Age and numbers don't matter. But the point is, I've done some living and I hope to do some more. In all my years, I have never heard a single person say, I built my life on the Bible. I built my marriage, my family, my career on the Bible. I built my life on the Bible and now I realize I was wrong. Never heard someone say that, not even once. But more times than I can count, I've heard people admit that they built their life on some other thing and they ended up in a ditch. Jesus called that a life built on sand. Now, in today's language, if you'll allow me to just rephrase this and how we might say it today, Jesus is in essence saying, if you disregard my word and you buy into every fad or trendy philosophy or theology, you're on shifting sand. It's just a matter of time till the whole thing comes down and when it does, it's going to be ugly with a capital U. So, as we think about the God questions, Perhaps the biggest question to tackle is this. What are you going to build your life on? I mean, this book has stood the test of time and it offers good history, good science, and the best psychology there is. You can blow it off if you want. You can disregard it if you want. But let me ask you, what are you going to put in its place? What? What's going to be true north in your life? What's going to be the compass for this life and your security for the life to come? Because you're betting the ranch on this one. So Be smart. Use the intellect that God gave you. Think of it this way. The most valuable calculation that you can do is calculating the future cost of current decisions. So, choose what you'll believe. Only you can. And it's my hope and prayer for you that you would choose wisely. Now why don't we pray together for a moment. Our good God, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for your word. Thank you for never leaving us alone in this world. You give us your word to guide us to come and take root in our lives and produce fruit that glorifies you and gives us the best life that comes from you. We thank you for your word, Lord. Help us to make more and more of it a part of our life every single day. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, church, I love you. Praying for you. 
miss seeing you in person, uh, contact us and let us know if there's anything at all that we can do for you. Until that time comes, let me leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the God who came still comes, and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.